Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a novelist and playwright who finished her first acclaimed novel whilst working at a Japanese bank aged just 26. The Nudist Colony was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. Since then, she's published seven novels, including the Women's Prize long-listed The Internationals, a satire about NATO involvement in the Balkans' war. She also teaches creative writing and is an experienced playwright, working with her husband to nurture young talent in the theatre and publishing industries. Her latest novel is Becky's, a 90s and early noughties reimagining of William Thackeray's Vanity Fair about a ferocious young journalist who will do anything to get to the top. Sarah May, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. It's just lovely to have you here because I really love this book. Now, I don't know whether that is because Becky Sharp is a kind of universal character or if I am just a grasping, self-promoting, <laughs> <laughs> very ambitious woman, which you can clearly tell by my, my wealth and my success. <laughs> but she is a character that people love and love to hate. Yes, and she's also one of those fantastic kind of larger-than-life characters. She kind of outgrew the pages that she was written for a long time ago. I love talking to people about Vanity Fair because not everybody's read Vanity Fair. Some people have, you know, it's a favourite book, other people haven't. But as soon as you mention Becky Sharp, everybody knows who Becky Sharp is, whether they've read Vanity Fair or not, and that's what I love about her. And, of course, it's been made into several yes. different film versions. Yes, but you know yes. what? We're going to come back to that because I want to, I want to start with you and your beginnings because where you began and how you grew up, we see very much reflected in, in some of your work. So I know that you were born in Northumberland, yes. but you, you were brought up in a, in a cul-de-sac in Horsham <laughs> in, West, in West Sussex, and that's important. Yes, I think it's that kind of, you know, I experienced my childhood very much through that prism of class. And Becky is very much about class. It's very much about that kind of outsider who wants to get onto the inside. And my childhood was kind of very formative in that experience myself as well. So my parents came from generations of mining families in Northumberland and they were basically economic migrants. They moved south. And Dad was the first person in our family to get a degree. And as a result of that, books were always very important in our family. They were important because they were always seen as portals to beyond, portals to kind of a better place, a better future. They had real worth. And the bookcase in the house, you know, it meant a lot. Dad didn't grow up with books. I grew up with books because of his degree and because of the worth that he gave books. So they've always been a very important part of my life as has sort of seeing my parents sort of set up their lives, you know, very good lives in the south of England, but still with these kind of northern, you know, northern accents, which kind of set them apart from other people's parents. And I saw two very determined, very ambitious, very kind of loving adults really try to make a place for themselves in this new world that they found themselves. So I sort of very much saw my world through my own eyes, but also through my parents' kind of outsider eyes. No, absolutely. I mean, tell us about that. When one says suburbs or, or cul-de-sac, one immediately thinks of sort of curtain twitching and, and kind of small lives, I suppose. Yeah, and I think <laughs> the fantastic thing about the cul-de-sac is that you have there, in sort of in front of you to be seen, 
all these sort of class divides that still haunt, I you know, genuinely believe they still haunt Britain. I know we're meant to live in a classless society now, but I, I don't believe that's true. Well, I mean, and, and George Bernard Shaw, that wonderful quote, yeah. it's impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise yes. him. Yes, <laughs> Very much so. And I think in, what you see in, in a cul-de-sac on kind of one of these housing estates is this sort of hierarchy. You've got the sort of five-bedroom executive homes. You've got the three-bedroom semi-detached. You know, everything's just so compartmentalised. You've got the smaller sort of terrace two-bedroom homes. You've got the homes with garages. You've got the homes without garages. It's sort of a reflection of British society in miniature. Mm-hmm. Now, you had a baby at 19. I did, I did. That must have disturbed your parents' suburban existence. I think it did, but, you know, they're kind of fantastic people <laughs> and they dealt with so much upheaval in their own lives that they were kind of able to support and nurture me through that upheaval in my own life. And it informed me hugely as a writer. I mean, I wrote my debut novel in my early 20s under kind of these extraordinary circumstances. I was a mum, you know, I was working full time and I was also determined to become a writer and I was writing this novel literally in my lunch hours. I mean, hats off to you. I think this is amazing, <laughs> particularly looking after a child at that age and doing it yeah. whilst looking holding after down sort a of job. practically and also financially as well. Mm. You know, I mean, nursery fees were insane and I was juggling a lot. And I wrote most of The Nudist Colony in my lunch hours while I was working at the bank in the Guildhall Library. So I've got a great relationship with the Guildhall Library. I'm very, very fond of it. I could probably look at the chair where I used to sit, you know, but that's how my first book was was grown. And it was hailed because people said that it was a kind of experimental style of writing, that it was a, a new voice. Mm. Is that what you were heading for? I'm not interested in being experimental. So that wasn't something that happened deliberately. I felt I had a story to tell, and that's how my voice told that story. I really found my voice with that novel, or I started to find my voice. Something that came later with my voice was this kind of darkly sort of comic element. But I, you know, what matters to me a lot, and it's um, something I think really comes to the fore in Becky, is that my books are actually incredibly accessible. So it was funny that they kind of said that The Nudist Colony was experimental. It wasn't something I was... I wasn't trying to be new. I wasn't trying to break boundaries. That's just how my voice worked at the time. And what's that book about? (laughs) It's sort of, it's interesting for me now looking at that book again, because I can see a lot of the themes that I am very preoccupied with as a writer and sort of starting, starting to grow and gain traction and gain momentum in that book, which is very much about the past and how we're never really quite able to leave the past behind. We're never quite able to leave our childhoods behind at a personal level, at a more national level. We can't quite leave the past behind. There's always a point where it catches up with us. It kind of comes back to bite us, which is obviously one of the major themes in Becky as well. Mm. Your next book, Spanish City, shortlisted for the Encore Award, that's set on the northeast coast of England. And it's a wonderful kind of exploration of the evolution of pleasure across mm. the 20th century. But I guess also those class divides come into that yeah, too. Absolutely. I mean, the um, Spanish city set in post war post-war Britain and the class preoccupations that kind of re-establish themselves after the upheaval and victory of that Second World War were a major preoccupation in that novel. But still that same theme about the past coming Mm. and catching up with us. Now, meanwhile, in your personal life, you got married, you had Mm. another baby. 
And you moved to Macedonia. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, we moved to <laughs> we moved to Macedonia. My partner was working for Care International at the time, and we relocated there because he was working with Kosovan refugees in Chigrane refugee camp, and he was actually staging theatre productions there. So we were there for quite some time, and my third novel, The Internationals, came out of our experiences in Skopje, which is where we were based Mm. in Macedonia, as part of that floating international community of aid workers and diplomats and politicians. And it's an, it's an exploration of the darker side of international aid. I mean, I read an interview where you were talking about how the kids there couldn't understand what on earth you were doing and why you wouldn't go and live somewhere where you could have endless Coca-Cola and widescreen televisions. In that respect, the internationals is very much an exploration of foreign intervention in a more general sense, and I don't come down on any side of this argument. It's very much an exploration. Is it always the right thing? It's very hard for people living in a region like the Balkans to understand why so many uh, Western aid aid organisations are there and what exactly their agenda is. Mm. And I wonder what the living circumstances were for you there, because I know certainly for aid workers in some parts of Africa. Mm. It is genuinely still verandas and tennis parties and gin and tonics and cocktails with the British ambassador. Luckily, it wasn't wasn't quite as picturesque as that um, in Skopje, which is an amazing city. But luckily, we didn't kind of quite achieve those dizzying heights. We were still sort of very much part of the local, local community. And so tell me about the work there and how that informed what what you then went on to say about it all. Well, we were working in quite a few villages which had a heavy Albanian Kosovan population and we were doing a lot of a lot of work to ease tensions between the national kind of Macedonians and also the Albanian Macedonians as well. Mm. This book, again, went on to be long-listed for the Women's Prize. I mean, it did extremely well. Yes. And it it was very much also born out of a play that um, my partner directed in Barking with Kosovan refugees. It was a play written by Philip Ridley called Brokenville. And, of course, alongside all of this, you've been writing plays too, all sorts of plays. I like the idea of the one about elephants, that you did in Elephant and Castle. (laughs) Yes, Elephant 21, which was about the um, very contentious regeneration of Elephant and Castle. We did some extraordinary productions with our Young People's Theatre Company. That's the Mayhem Company. The Mayhem Company, yes. Uh, you did one which was about Iraq and the, and the war there. Yes, that was, a, that was a shorter piece, but I think the one that really resonated the most with the young people we were working with at the time was the Butterfly Club, which was inspired by the series of suicides in Bridgend in Wales. Tell us more. It was an exploration of a very a very dark subject, but the wonderful thing about working with both them kind of young people is that they see the funny side of absolutely everything. <laughs> and I don't say that lightly and I don't say it irresponsibly, but we kind of we gave them the safe space to really have a very broad discussion mm. about teenagers. And your theatre company still exists? We do something slightly different slightly different now. So now we're now we're looking at sort of doing new versions of Shakespeare. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yes, yeah. So we did a version of Macbeth last year. In fact, we our show was the first one to play at the reopened Theatre Peckham after COVID. 
Yeah. Uh, you return to your roots again yeah. uh, in your book. I think it's called The Queen of Suburbia, is it? Yes. Yeah. Tell us yes. about that. That's very much set in the the kind of the 80s. Again, my, my kind of my preoccupation with class. And there's a lot of paranoia. It's a kind of extended study in paranoia and an, a sort of an exploration of life in a very confined environment. It's all set around one dinner party basically, that the protagonist holds. It's a sort of spin-off of Mrs Dalloway, an 80s suburban spin-off of Mrs Dalloway, if that makes any sense. And does it have anything of Abigail's party in it? (laughs) People have often compared it. Yeah, they've often compared it to (laughs) Abigail's party. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a study of those those real eighties preoccupations, and then sort of hanging over everything is this threat. And I remember it myself from growing up in the eighties. This sort of threat of nuclear war that hung over everything at that time. Mm. I always remember reading Raymond Briggs's "When the Wind Blows." It mm. absolutely terrified me. It was so scary, particularly if you it read it as really, a child. And I, I sort of yeah. absolutely took it at face value. I felt as if this was something that was going to happen. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And I always remember from within my kind of suburban bedroom, sort of, you know, pulling the curtains back every morning and just checking to make sure there wasn't a, a mushroom cloud outside. <laughs> the rise and fall of a domestic diva. Again, are we taking those same themes? Yes, the same themes, but the next generation. <laughs> so it's the generation, the younger person's generation from rise and fall of the Queen of Suburbia sort of grown up and relocated to London. So we sort of follow quite a few of the same characters as they hit adulthood themselves, as they move from teenagehood to adulthood. So the two books can kind of be read together. Mm. Now, I love the fact that you you openly kind of say Mrs Dalloway was an inspiration, perhaps Abigail's party was. (laughs) Certainly Vanity Fair uh, was an inspiration. So let's talk about this book now, because the front cover is done like a tabloid front page. Becky, she's on her way to the top, (laughs) one scandal at a time. It's a fabulous fabulous cover. I just think it it's not just that it tells the story of the book sort of immediately, but it captures the energy of the book. Yeah. Now, this is set in Fleet Street, or at least the, the newspaper yes. industry, yes. Uh, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. Now, I think we all remember what happened in the newspaper industry at that time. There was the hacking scandal. There was also exposés of Princess Diana's love affairs. And there were many other scandals like that. Yeah all of which are represented in this book. Now, we also must remember who was in charge of The Sun at that time. Mm -hmm. Can I just say I'm surprised you haven't been sued? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, of course, we're talking about Rebecca Brooks, who is not mentioned in this book at all. There is no description of this woman. You cannot tie the two together. But, of course, there were many parallels in that. But it was source material that was rolling around, waiting to be written about, I would say. I mean, yes, I've wanted to... I've wanted to do a retelling of Vanity Fair for a long time. And I knew that I wanted to set it in the 90s because there are certainly a lot of parallels between sort of 90s Britain, noughties Britain and Georgian Britain. I thought this is going to work absolutely, absolutely brilliantly. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to set it in the 90s, what would Becky Sharp do in the 90s? And the tabloid world was just there waiting for her to literally step into. She would have been... Uh, I mean, she would have been exactly what she is in your book. Yes, yeah. And it was just, it was this incredible light bulb moment. I thought, of course, 
she would be a journalist. Of course she would. At a time when newsprint was at its absolute zenith, you know, we had uh, Princess Diana who was literally spearheading this whole new brand of celebrity culture. And this is, you know, this is when newsprint and newspapers were dictating who was going to be in power, who our government, you know, they could make or break a government. Mm, like, so, you, so important. You know, literally. And I mean, that moment when Murdoch's press got behind Tony Blair just changed it, absolutely changed everything. So this was, you know, don't forget as well, the internet was a relatively new baby at the time. There were no other platforms. It was newsprint, kind of newsprint reigned supreme. It was the sort of the powerhouse of the 90s. And Becky as a character would always find her way to wherever, mm. wherever that power source was. And it was definitely the tabloid press in the 90s. So that, that just made perfect sense to me. And I think what's also really interesting about the media industry is that class per se doesn't matter. Once you're in to that bubble, once you're mm. part of that media hierarchy, and a lot of people do come into it from more humble backgrounds, mm. then you're in. You can be from anywhere, but nobody perhaps quite knows where you fit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know whether um, you're familiar with Julie Welch's book, The Girls of Fleet Street, that came out last year that was looking specifically at and sort of women on, you know, on Fleet Street and the kind of the hard time they had, especially in the 60s, 70s and 80s. But actually, it's funny when you think about the tabloid press because the tabloid press had one of the, not the absolute first, but one of the first female editors for a very long time. There was a female editor, interestingly, amazingly, in 1909, and then there wasn't another female editor on Fleet Street until, gosh, 1987, and that was Wendy Henry, News of the World. But they, they led the way, mm. despite the misogyny. And there was an extraordinary amount of misogyny in the tabloid world, on both sides of the fence, as it were. But despite I, think, that, I would argue there still yeah, is. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, ongoing. But yes, they were, News of the World was one of the first newspapers to appoint a female editor. Yeah. In Henry. But it's extraordinary in that talking about ongoing misogyny and women in, in the media is that there is a kind of tabloid hack who, whether they are male or female, sign up to that. I find many of the women who work in those that kind of atmosphere take on that kind of blokish Fleet Street hard drinking. And I know that's pretty much in the in the mm. past, but it does still exist. I think certainly, I'm thinking about myself in the workplace as a woman in the 90s and absolutely misogyny was rife there. And I think there's very much that element of the, I don't know whether you remember the ladette mm. from the 90s, this kind of cultural phenomenon of the woman who wanted to fit in by sort of, by becoming a lad, basically. I think fortunately we've we've moved on, you know, we've moved on from there. I don't think, I don't think that women feel they have to mimic male behaviour in order to succeed in the way that we possibly did in the 90s. There's a fantastic line in here and this is about Becky's trying to tell somebody something and she's just calmed her voice right down and she says there's no such thing as an angry woman, only a mad woman. And it's true, isn't it? The minute a woman gets angry and starts shouting, she's shrieking. Yeah. She's yeah. a mad bitch. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been in that situation myself and I have literally being aware of talking myself down so that I don't become that crazy chick. Mm. You know, that we're, all, that we're all about to become. You can't, you have to really, you have to really manage yourself, especially in situations which are quite charged, the way you feel quite strongly about things. Mm. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. But it also plays into this whole thing of changing your voice. I mean, go back to, to Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. even, whose voice had to be lowered several yeah. tones, and to the whole class aspect that, that Thackeray talks about, but as do you. Yes, very much so. And the thing, you know, at the heart of Becky, and this was hugely important to me, at the heart of Vanity Fair, we have this young woman, she's an orphan, she's 18, year old, she's 18 years old when we meet her for the first time, and she is completely alone in the world. She has nobody and nothing behind her. And I was very keen to have the same situation, you know, in my book, Becky, for my character, Becky, mm. as well. And it's something it's something that's, you know, that's there. She's, she's an orphan, like her original Georgian counterpart. She's 18 and she's alone in the world. You know, it's the 90s, but she's completely alone in the world. She has nobody. She has nothing. She has to make this work. There's no plan B. Mm. There's nothing to fall back on. Mm. You know, and she survived. I don't want to give any uh, any spoilers here, but she survived a big childhood trauma. And she's she's very much she's very much a survivor. She's come through the other end. She looks about her. She can see the the sort of the hand that fate has dealt her, rather like her original counterpart. And she sort of decides, you know, no, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna play this role. I'm not gonna take up this tiny space in the world that I've been allotted. I'm not gonna breathe this tiny amount of oxygen. I'm gonna ask for much, much more mm. than that. You know, she really she really rails rails against rails against it. Now, one of the big sort of plot lines in this mm. is is the phone hacking scandal that, mm. that happened. And I wonder how much that has rocked newspapers, how much the culture has changed since then. Um, yes, it's interesting. I mean, the phone, the phone hacking scandal in itself is interesting. When I was when I was thinking about my retelling, my version of Becky, I thought back to Vanity Fair and the Battle of Waterloo, which is this kind of amazing moment of hubris in the original novel. And I had I had my nineties and noughties tabloid world setting, and I thought, well, you know, where where's Becky's moment of hubris going to come? And of course, it presented itself in the phone hacking, Mm. in the phone hacking trial. It's that moment where she's absolutely put to the test and the world that she lives in is also put to the test. And I don't offer... I don't offer a commentary. I don't offer a solution on that. I very much um, leave the reader to navigate that world sort of on their own terms. Mm. But just looking at that now and looking at, for instance, the publication of Prince Harry's book Spare and these groups like Hacked Off and so on that are all kind of pushing for, for, more, for more checks and balances within the media. I mean, it's very interesting to see that those, those groups are still necessary, that mm. Prince Harry feels he has to write his side of the story because all of these people feel that there is gross misrepresentation mm. going on particularly in the tabloid press i think what the phone hacking trial did it made public a discussion that needed to be had in the public arena in the courts but also in the public arena and it's you know clearly as as spare has shown it is a discussion that is ongoing and the phone hacking trial didn't offer a, a solution. It didn't change everything overnight. I think it's going to take time. Mm, I think mm. it's going to take time. There's another line in here, and this is when they're at a party and she looks around her, mm. everybody kind of shimmering, and she says, here we are, our small, untouchable universe. Mm. And these are people that have come from all sorts of places, but but generally quite posh, mm. or if not posh, they've certainly made themselves immune to kind of outside interference by being part of this it's world. The elite. It's the elite. It is the it elite. Is the elite. And yeah. I would argue it absolutely 
absolutely exists still. Mm. Oh, completely. And I mean, we it's interesting that you've um, just spoken about that party scene because it sort of echoes another party scene at the very beginning of the book where we see Becky as a very young journalist invited to her first kind of important party where she sees people she recognises from the sort of, you know, from the from the screen and from, from Westminster. She's looking at the elite. At that first party she goes to, she's kind of looking at the elite from a distance. Mm. And there's a, still a bit of a chasm that's separating her from them. And there's this kind of exoticism and, and she's at the party, but she's not in the party in the way she is by the end of the book. Yeah. By the end of the book, she is the party mm. and she's at the centre of the party. And, you know, so much of the book, I mean, the original Vanity Fair, but also Becky, is about her journey from, you know, outside to inside. Mm. And what happens when you get inside? Does it does it look like she thought it was going to look? Mm. You know, and there's even a line when she's at that first party mm. saying, you know, by the end of the decade, she would have files on all of them. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I mean, that, that's brings... eerie foreshadowing. <laughs> but I mean, this small, untouchable universe and the parties, of course, bring yeah. us right back to what's just been happening in British politics. I mean, mm. it just doesn't stop. This is, <laughs> this plot plays out uh, again yes. and again yes. and again. Yes. And it was this small, untouchable group of, of ex-Eaton yep. schoolboys and yep. their political cohorts and their journalist friends yep. thinking a big F you to the world. We will have a party. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the Queen's husband's been yeah. buried tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, the fantastic thing, the fantastic thing about Becky is she, you know, as I've said, she's she's this orphan. She's somebody who has absolutely no connections. She doesn't have anybody she can call on. So she has to create her own network, which is what... Becky does. She kind of creates her own network. She finally gets on, you know, she finally gets on the inside. She's part of the elite. She finally gets on the inside. (laughs) And it's about, it's a morality tale for our times. Yes, it is. It is a morality tale for our times. And I, I sort of very much put it to the reader, I think, at the end of the book. I don't want to, I don't want to overguide anybody. I don't want to kind of over curate the argument. I want to very much leave it with the reader to decide where they stand with all of this and also where Becky stands as well. Mm. Well, I think it's fantastically well done. And the thing is that it's it's not only thought-provoking and it doesn't only make us think about media and politics and so on today. It's just this rattling great page-turner. <laughs> you want to see what happens to her. I mean, how easy is it to write about what essentially is an unlikable character? I have very strong feelings about use of the word unlikable. Are you ready for this? Absolutely. (laughs) Hit me up. And there's a lot of discussion at the moment, actually, you know, at a cultural level in the media about this idea of an unlikable female character. So when the original Becky Sharp sort of first stepped on stage in 1846, she sort of broke the mould. She was this whole new kind of female protagonist. She was an anti-heroine. Suddenly we moved from a heroine to to an anti-heroine. And that's something I was very keen to explore with Becky. But I thought, but what do we actually mean by anti-heroine? That's somebody we shouldn't be, somebody who's um, going to be punished for breaking the mould, you know, for sort of for kicking against circumstances. And this this idea of unlikable, I think it's really unhelpful. I think she's, you know, Becky's a female, she's a female protagonist. She's a complete person. She's a whole person. She's wonderful in many respects and she's terrible in many respects. She has her good side and she has her bad side. She's complicated and she's complex. I think to label a female protagonist, whether it's a novel, whether it's a sort of movie, whether it's a a TV show, as unlikable is, is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. 
because it's saying that women have to sort of at a social level women have to set the moral bar mm. they have to be well behaved they have to be presentable they have to be likable that's a very old argument and we just have to move away from it at some at some point. Well, I'm quite sure readers are going to make up their own <laughs> mind uh, and they absolutely should read it because I had so much fun with it. So thank you, uh, thank Sarah. You. Becky is by Sarah May. It's published by Picador and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers thanks to the production team of Nora Hall, Steph Chungu and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.